how sovereign would you say that God is? Would you say that God is completely sovereign or that God is just kind of, sort of sovereign? What I mean is, do you believe that God is sovereign all the time regardless of the situation? Or does God's sovereignty rise and fall on things that comfort and encourage me? Maybe I can explain it better with a couple of true stories. On March 1st, 1951, a couple was scheduled to have, or a church was scheduled to have choir practice at 7.30. As the pastor and his wife prepared to leave, they discovered that their daughter had an accident and they were late, which was very unusual for them. One of the members of the choir was a high school sophomore. She was having a problem with her geography homework and was also late. This was also unusual for the girl that was normally early. There were two sisters that were leaving to go and their car wouldn't start and they were late, which was unusual. A Sunday school teacher was walking out the door and she received a call from her mother who needed her help. She went to see about her mother and that caused her to be late, which was unusual. One guy took a nap before choir practice and slept through the alarm and so he was late, which was unusual. For one reason or another, all the members of the choir were late for practice, which was, as you may have guessed, unusual. When they arrived at church, they found the church was in flames. A gas leak at the church, and it had exploded at 7.45. Had the members of the choir all arrived on time, they likely would have been killed in the explosion. Now let's think about another true story. The story of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and those that went with them to the Akua Indians. These four men determined that it was God's will for their lives to take the gospel to the, the Wolodani people, also called the Akus, Akas of Ecuador. They spent a significant amount of time preparing to take the gospel to these people. They flew to the place where they would make contact and begin to share the gospel and set up camp. Over a period of the time, they, they made contact with one of the natives, a guy named George, that they named George. The contact seemed friendly, so they decided they would go and officially make contact with the people. And what they didn't know was that George had lied to the people about the missionaries and their intentions, and there were a group of warriors headed toward them at that time. The warriors attacked and killed them all. The bodies of the missionaries were dumped in the river, and they floated, where they floated away, and they were later found downstream from their base. Outside of George, the missionaries never made contact with these people, and they never shared the gospel with them. Now, in which situation was God sovereign? In which situation was God's will accomplished? What if the answer to that question is both? I mean, we can easily see how God was sovereign and His will was accomplished in the first story. But the second story is a little more difficult to comprehend. But what if what happened to the missionaries was God's will? So that when Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, and a few others went to those people, they were able to reach virtually the entire tribe for Jesus. What if what happened to the missionary was God's will so that it would motivate missionary effort in the United States in such a way that it sparked an outpouring of funding for missionary efforts around the world? 
I bring all of this up because today we're continuing our study called Identity, knowing who I am in Christ by considering what it means to be called by God. But I have come to understand that as believers, we are not where we are by chance and circumstance, but by the will of God. From what I see in Scripture, God orchestrates events to place His people where He wants them so that they can accomplish His will in the world. Today, to show this, I want us to consider two stories from the Old Testament. The first is the story of Joseph. Go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis 37. We're going to start in verse 18. It's page 37 in the the Pew Bibles. And let me pray before we get started this morning. Our Father, we love you. Father, you are great, wonderful, and amazing. God's Scripture teaches that you are sovereign over all things. That life and breath is a gift from you. That you uphold the world and you keep it going by your very will and your power. Father, help us to look at these stories today and consider our lives in light of the fact that you are sovereign over us. Father, help us to consider that maybe we are where we are, not by chance and circumstance, but by your will. And begin to look to see what we can do to be your agents of change here in the world. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand your ways. Help us to seek your will. Fill me with your Holy Spirit as I speak. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The story of Joseph is probably familiar. Joseph was the second to the youngest child of Jacob, he was his daddy's favorite. This was shown when Jacob gave his son what we call a a coat of many colors. Joseph one day had a dream and he told it to his brothers. The dream was something like this. He saw his brothers bowing down to him at some point. His brothers didn't really appreciate the concept that someday they would bow down to him, and it irritated them. Not to be dissuaded from what he felt God was showing him, Joseph later told another dream that basically showed his mom and dad and his brothers all bowing before him. So being daddy's favorite, having these visions of exaltation that put him over them, made them not like him. Add to this, from what we can tell, Joseph may have been a tattletale. His brothers did something they weren't supposed to do. Joseph reported that to the dad. And all in all, you have a recipe for some pretty serious sibling rivalry. Well, one day, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on the boys. See where they're at, see what's going on, and go bring me back a report. So, Joseph goes. He finds out where his brothers are. He is walking and they see him from afar off and they hatch a plan. Let's just kill him. Let's see what happens to his dreams then. The oldest brother, Reuben, he says, let's not kill him. Let's just push him in a pit. 
Right? We won't kill him, we'll just haze him a little bit. They think that sounds like an okay idea, so they, they push him in a pit. Reuben apparently leaves at this point. While they're sitting down and eating with Joseph in the pit, some Ishmaelites come by. And the Ishmaelites are slave traders, it would seem. And so, one of the brothers, Judah, he comes up with a plan. And, and I love this because of the, word he said, the wording he uses. Look at verse 26 of Genesis 18. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there to kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh. What a guy, right? It's just going to make us feel bad if we kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery instead. Right? And so the brothers agreed. What a great idea this is. And so they, they take Joseph, who, from what we can understand, is probably about 17 years old, and they sell him to sla- into slavery. Now, jump ahead to Genesis 39. Genesis 39 tells us what happens when Joseph is sold into slavery. The Ishmaelites, they go from the land of Canaan down to the land of Egypt, and they sell Joseph to a man named Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard. Seems to be the captain of the palace guard for the Egyptians. And he's sold and made a slave there. But look at what we're told about Joseph in verses 2 and 3. The Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And the Lord made all he did to prosper at his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and he served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him an overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So Joseph is... Sold into slavery by his brothers. He's made a slave to a captain of an Egyptian guard. But God is with him. God has not abandoned him. The circumstances are bad. Nothing that's happening to Joseph is his fault. It is just what would seem to be a bad situation. From, from a, just a, a purely, I guess, a, a non-God-centered point of view, a series of circumstances conspired against Joseph found him into slavery. That really wasn't what was going on. Through it all, the Lord was with him, and the Lord blessed him, and the Lord blessed his master because of him. And that sounds like it's not not an ideal situation. It's not that bad. But Joseph's situation gets worse. Joseph, apparently, is a good-looking young lad. And he catches the eye, Potiphar's wife. Alan, what's her name? Hodifer. Her name is Hodifer. I don't know how Alan knows that, but he does, and so we're going to go with it. He catches the eye of Hodifer, who is hot for Joseph. <laughs> anyway, that was dad jokes. Anyway, she hits on him and says, come lie with me. And Joseph, he says, no. Look at what he says in verse 9. So I do want to point out one thing. Well, verse 8. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. 
There is no one greater in the house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. Now, this last part is what I want you to hone in on. How then can I do this great wickedness, sin against God? And this isn't part of the message, but just a thought. Despite the fact Joseph would be sinning against his master, who had been so good to him, Joseph's primary concern was the fact that his sin was against God. Regardless of anything else, we must always understand our sin is ultimately against the God who has ordered the universe and said, Thou shalt and thou shalt not. So Joseph refuses to take part. But she's not one to give up easily. She is probably rich and influential as a child growing up. And now she's married to someone that's wealthy and influential. There's probably not been many things in her life that have been denied her. Joseph, certainly a slave from a foreign country, certainly wasn't going to be the first. So she she comes on to him again and she grabs him by his clothes. And, and with this, and she says, lie with me, it tells us in verse 12. But Joseph, so committed to following his Lord. He left his garment in her hand and he fled and he ran outside. I mean, that's just like the when you're leaving your clothes and running away, that's the ultimate in rejection right there. And she didn't handle it well. The Bible, it goes on to tell us that when she sees that she's been rejected, she screams until other servants come. And when the other servants come, she tells them, That Potiphar has brought this Hebrew in to mock us, for he tried to rape me. But he fled when I yelled, and look, here's proof, I have the man's clothes. Potiphar comes back from doing whatever it is a captain of the guard does, and she tells him the story again. And the Bible says his anger was aroused, I'm sure. And so he takes Joseph, and he commits him to prison. And now, he is imprisoned. Enslaved, none of it his fault, having done nothing wrong. But it tells us in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph, showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything That was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. The Lord was still with Joseph. Circumstances were still bad. The situation still seems pretty dire. But Joseph has his God and Joseph is still being blessed. Time goes on. Joseph languishes in prison for two full years. During this time, there was an instance where Two of Pharaoh's servants were imprisoned with him, and they told a dream. Each had a dream, and they were concerned because they didn't know what it meant. Joseph explained what the dreams meant, and what Joseph said came to pass. It's two full years of past, Pharaoh also has a dream. Chapter 41, it tells us that he has two separate dreams. He's standing by the river, and he watches, and seven fat cows come out of the river. And after the seven fat cows come out of the river, seven skanky cows come out of the river. Although I don't think skanky is the official Bible word. It just, they were pitiful looking. They came up out and they, they ate the seven fat cows. But despite the fact they ate the seven fat cows, they, they didn't actually look any healthier. They still looked 
poor and sickly. Pharaoh wakes up and he has, goes back to sleep and he has another dream. Very similar, except it's about stalks of corn. Same concept. The corn comes up great for seven of them. Seven bad ones come up. It devours them and they don't look any better. And he's perplexed by the dream. He calls his magicians and wise men in and he asks them, what is the meaning of this dream? They have no clue. They have no idea. They cannot give an answer. At this point, one of the servants of Pharaoh who was with Joseph, says, I remember something I've done wrong. Not long ago, you were angry, a couple of us, and you put us in prison. And there was a Hebrew there, a slave. And we had dreams, and he told us what those dreams meant. And I bet you, he can tell you what these mean as well. And so, Pharaoh, he sends for Joseph. Joseph is cleaned up shaved, put in some nice clothes to go and stand before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. Joseph reminds them that those sorts of things belong to God. But tell him and he'll see what God will do. Pharaoh recites his dreams and Joseph tells him in verse 28. This thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh, which God has shown what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. And the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land. So, seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine that are so bad, the years of prosperity will be forgotten. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream which was reported to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and collect one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. Then let him gather the food of those years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. Let them keep the food in the cities. Then that food has a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt. That the land may not perish during the famine. So Joseph not only knows what the dream means, but he has a plan how to, to keep everybody from dying. Make a collection Keep it and use it during the famine years. Pharaoh thinks that's great. It's a great idea. Who, who could be wiser than Joseph to implement this plan? So Joseph is elevated out of slavery and out of prison. And he is made the second ruler of the land. Basically, he is second in command over Pharaoh, under Pharaoh, over the most powerful nation in the world. The seven good years come. The seven good years go. Famine begins to press into the land. It is so severe. It presses outside the lands of Egypt into the land of Canaan where Joseph's brothers and family are. And they begin to suffer. In Genesis 42, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin and his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall him. So the, the ten brothers, they go to get what they need. And when they go, you have to go to this one particular guy to buy. 
They don't know who it is. It's just an Egyptian as far as they're concerned. But lo and behold, it's Joseph. And as they come, it's been quite a few years now. Joseph has aged and has grown up. He's probably decked out like an Egyptian and they do not recognize him. But he recognizes them. And Joseph, well, he begins to, I guess you could say, have fun at their expense. Because their lives are in his hand if Joseph commands for them to be taken and executed. That's what will happen with no questions asked. So Joseph asked them, who are you? And they tell him. We're all brothers of the same guy. There were 12 of us, but one of us has died. The younger one is with dad. Joseph says, no, that's not really what's going on. You're spies. You're all spies. And you came here to see how, what kind of shape we're in so that you could plan to conquer us. I'm going to put you all in jail. And they say, no, 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 no. We're all brothers of one guy. And one is dead and, and one has stayed. And he says, well, send one of you to go back and to get the little brother and, and bring him up here. And then I'll believe you. And they don't No, we can't. Dad won't let him go. So Joseph puts them all in prison. After a period of time, he he goes to him and he says, I fear God. So here's what I'll do. I'll keep one of you. I'll let the rest of you go back with your the stuff you've bought. And you take it. And then when you come back to get more, you bring this little brother and I'll let the one I'm keeping go. And they're stressed out by the whole deal because, man, what a terrible turn of events for them. And they, they go back and they tell Jacob what has happened. They need to take Benjamin and, and go see the ruler of the land. And Jacob won't do it. His brother, Benjamin's brother Joseph, is dead as far as he knows. There's no way he is going to let this happen. So, no. So, Jacob, also being quite a guy, leaves one of his sons to languish in prison, I guess hoping that the ruler of the Egyptians will just be nice and let him go. And so, they stay there and they eat up all the grain that they've bought. And they go until they run out and then he tells them again, why are you just sitting here? You know where there's grain, go and buy it. And they tell him, we can't. He told us. That we can't come back without our little brother and you won't let our little brother go. So they, they argue back and forth and they choose, they determine that they should go. Jacob lets Benjamin go and they go back up there and they stand before Joseph again. Joseph takes them all into a place where they can eat with him. He orders them in order of oldest to the youngest. He lets them all out. He eats with them, and then he lets them go. But again, he messes with them, I guess you'd say. Because he puts one of his cups that they had seen in the bag of the little brother, Benjamin. And then he sends riders out to catch them and to bring all of them back. And to say, why, after I've shown you this kindness, would you steal from me like this? And they affirm that they have not done that. They say, in whoever's hands you find this cup, let that one stay and die. And they go through, and lo and behold, it's Benjamin, and they know they can't go back to dad without Benjamin. So they all go back to Joseph. And they begin to try to explain to Joseph what's going on. We can't go back. That Benjamin's brother is dead. Our, our dad basically loves him better than he loves the rest of us. If we go back without him, he's just going to die. He won't be able to make it. And so one of them offers, he says, I'll stay. Let me stay in his place. Let Benjamin go. 
and send them back. And I'll stay and, and whatever you feel needs to be done. And then in verse 40, in chapter 45 and verse 1, it says that Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians, the house, heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. It's my father still live. But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed. In his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near and they said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold to Egypt. Now, they were dismayed, I'm sure, because they had sold him into Egypt. In fact, in one of the previous chapters, it mentions that they saw his tears as he pleaded with them not to do it. And they did it anyway. They're dismayed that Joseph may choose to get even with him. But notice what Joseph says. In verse five. But now do not. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years of the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you on the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. Right In Joseph's mind, as he sees this, he looks at it and he sees that this wasn't chance or circumstance that brought him to this place. This wasn't a series of bad events that happened. This was the hand of God. Seeking to accomplish his will in the world that brought Joseph to the place that he was at. Now, time goes on. Jacob dies. And Jacob's brother again fear that Joseph is going to get even with him because dad's gone. And so they, they tell him, dad told us before he died. But you weren't there. He said, forgive your brothers for the thing that they have done. And here's what Joseph says. Now, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I am the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Joseph understood. Now, how Joseph came to that understanding and how Joseph was, I guess, mature enough to grasp that is pretty amazing. But Joseph was able to look at the circumstances of his life. And he was able to see it from God's divine perspective and to see that he was not he was not the subject of circumstance. He was not a victim of bad circumstances. He was an agent that God had used to bring about his will in the world, that God had orchestrated events in such a way that Joseph was in just the right place at just the right time to do just the right thing that God wanted done. But Joseph isn't the only person in Scripture that we see this sort of thing happening. There's another great example of this in Queen Esther. Turn to the book of Esther. I believe it's like page 384 if you have a pew Bible. Esther was a Jew 
living in Shushan, the capital city of King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, depending on which translation you have. She was not a someone who moved there on her own. She was someone who was taken during a time of captivity. Israel, Judah particularly, had been conquered a couple of different times. And in those times of their conquering, the people who conquered them, the, P, the Medes and the Persians and others, would take people out and they would move them to different parts of the world to kind of displace them. Her family was displaced. They were refugees, I guess you could say. Taken to the capital city. At some point, Esther's family had died. Whether they died in the battles that led to the conquering of Jerusalem, whether they died in the travels that got them to Shushan, or whether they just died once they got to Shushan, we don't know. But either way, they were dead, and she was raised by a cousin named Mordecai. And Esther chapter 1 tells us the story. It's laying a foundation for the story of Esther. Chapter 1 tells us that there was a king named Ahasuerus who had a wife named Vashti. But one night, during a party, Ahasuerus called for his wife to come stand before the people, show off her beauty. He was having a party for the men. She was hosting a party for the women. And when his heart was lifted up with alcohol and such things, he called for his wife. She refused. Now, we don't know why she refused. We don't know what the issue was. All that we know is that basically she sent back word and declined his invitation to go and stand before the men wearing her crown so they could ogle her beauty. This angered the king. And more than it angered the king, it upset the others, other men. They, they said, you know, king, here's what's going to happen. If you let this stand, all the women in the kingdom are going to hear that the king sent for the queen. She said no. And at that point, all of the wives are going to despise all of the husbands. And it's just going to be problems for all of us. So the king says, well, what do I do? And they said, you ought to make an example of her to put all the rest of the women in check. Get rid of her. Banish her. Make her not the queen anymore. So in his anger, likely in his drunkenness, the king does it. He banishes Queen Vashti and puts everyone in check. Chapter 2, it tells us that the king kind of, he missed her after a while. His anger had subsided. Likely the alcohol had worn off. And he was thinking, well, that wasn't a good thing. Now I don't have a wife. And what I take from the first few verses is, he was considering rescinding the order. That's kind of the way I read it. Right? Look at one, verse 1 of chapter 2. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in, the prov- in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarter under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let the beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. And so, to me, it looks like he's like, I kind of like having a wife. 
Maybe I need to rescind this order. And they don't want that. Hey, here's a better idea. What if you just get all the good looking women in the kingdom brought to you and you just pick one? The Bible says, and this pleased the king. And so he did. Now, to understand what's going on, this isn't like an American idol audition. These women aren't coming to audition for the king and they're going to get raided and then he's going to keep the one he likes. This isn't a voluntary process. The king is going to send soldiers out and they're going to walk through the streets of the cities and they're going to look and go, you're good looking, come with me. Right? But I'm engaged over here, don't care. Right? You're good looking, I'm taking you, you're coming with me. And then all of them were brought to the capital. And then they spent a year in preparation, given beauty treatments and all of these things. And then one by one, they went to the king. For the king to decide if he liked them. Now, a lot of women, I guess, at least according to what you see in the fairy tales, they, they fantasize about marrying a king and becoming the queen. But chances are, it's not in this way. This isn't a fairy tale type romance. Because even the women that are taken, they don't get to go back home and have normal lives after that. Right? They spend a night with the king. Once they've spent a night with the king, they can't go and be with regular non-kingly men. So they're taken to another place where they will basically live out their days Alone. Now, they will be provided for. Family, love, all of those things are gone. Only one wins the competition. They're taken, they're kept, they spend their time with the king. Esther is the one who is chosen. What a remarkable set of circumstances. Here is a, a little Jewish girl, a foreigner to the kingdom whose community was sacked, whose people were conquered, who was taken out of her homeland, whose parents have died, who has been conscripted by the king, and now has been chosen to be his queen. None of this was her choice. None of this was anything she had anything to do with at all. It's just the circumstances of life that happened to Esther. Chapter 3, we're introduced to a bad guy named Haman. Haman was promoted as a major player in the kingdom to such an extent that when he went by, everyone was expected to, to bow down and to pay homage to him because of his position in life. And for some reason, Esther's cousin Mordecai refused. Why? No clue. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he refused. This made Haman angry. Verse 5, it says, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, he was filled with wrath. Verse 6 shows that Haman had some serious anger management issues. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. People of Mordecai. Mordecai's hacked me off. Killing him's too small. We'll just kill everybody. The same lineage of Mordecai. This was his plan. 
He went to the king and he said, hey, there is a people in your land that you've conquered. They're not like the rest of the people you've conquered. They have their own set of laws. They have their own gods. They've always kind of been troublemakers. Here's what I think we should do. I think you should send out a decree from the Pes- and, and, and sign it in the, the Medes and the Persians. And when the decree goes out, it says on a certain day, everybody that wants to can just kill these people at will. I mean, they can kill them and they can take their stuff and we'll tax what they take and it'll send money into your coffers and it will purge your land of the people. And the king gives him his signet ring and he says, do what you wish. Now, the reason it's important he gave the signet ring and it was done after the, the laws of the Medes and the Persians is the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be overturned. Once this was done and once the king's signet had sealed it, there was no going back. The king could not issue another decree saying, oh, wait, no, you can't kill them. At this point, it was law. So Haman wrote it up. From what I can gather from it, the law basically stated, if you know a Jew on this day, you can kill them. And you can take all their stuff. And if you're a Jew, you're not allowed to fight back. You just have to let them kill you and take your stuff. Well, word reached Mordecai that this was going on, and he was, as you can imagine, quite distressed. And so he he mourned outside the gates of the citadel, and Esther saw. And she sent someone to tell him, clean up, smile, it'll be okay. Mordecai refused. And he told her, here's what you have to do, Esther. You have to go to the king and see if there's something that can be done about this. And Esther says, Pooh, you don't know what you're asking. Nobody can just go to the king. He has to summon you. And if I walk into his presence without being summoned, and he doesn't point the scepter at me, they'll kill me. And I haven't been summoned in 30 days. I can't just do it. So listen to what Mordecai says to her. Verse 13 of chapter 4. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows? Whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now that is the pretty much the key verse for the entire book of Esther. Who knows if you have been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. What if, Esther, it wasn't just random coincidence and circumstances that led you to the place that you are? What if an all-knowing, all-sovereign God planned all that time ago for you, your family, to be here and you to be raised by me and you to be in the street at just the time the soldiers came by for you to be the one that he picked so that you can be the one to go to the king and do something to bring about our deliverance? What if it's not just a coincidence? What if there is a divine design behind your life that has brought you to this place to do His will? 
she determines that she will go. And I like verse 16, the very last. So I will go to the king against the law. If I perish, I perish. It's a great statement. She goes, and of course the, the Jews are delivered. Take some time and read the last three verses to see what happens. But what we have to see in both of these stories is that what seemed like really bad circumstances, what seemed like coincidental things that happened outside of the, the people, that none of it was really just random chance. That none of what happened to them was just the circumstances of life. Instead, in, in both situations, there was an almighty God working behind the scenes, orchestrating events that, that strategically placed His people in important places to do His will at just the right time. As I thought about that, I want you to understand in our own lives, God has placed me where He can work through me to accomplish His will. I mean, what if we're not where we are by chance and circumstance? What if our whole lives, God has been working in our lives to bring us to where we are for such a time as this? What if Almighty, all-knowing, all-sovereign God has placed you and I in the very place He needs us to be so that we can accomplish His will. Honestly, I'm convinced this is the way that it is. I do not believe we are in the places we are by chance and circumstance. We are where we are by the sovereign will and divine plan of our great God. And I think when we look at the New Testament, it bears out this idea. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. I love this passage, and one day I'm going to preach this whole section of it. But what I want you to understand is the context of Romans 8, 28 and 29 is that of bad things. See, this isn't a promise that God works all good things. For our good and His glory. The context is really that of suffering. And the promise of this verse is that God works all things. That all the good things that happen in our lives. God uses them. For our good and for His glory. But at the same time God uses all the bad things that happen in our lives. For our good and for His glory. And probably the, the most misunderstood part of this passage is what is for our Good. What is what is our ultimate good that God is working all things together for? And this is where we misunderstand because we tend to look at this from a kind of a self-centered American centric point of view. In a self-centered American centric point of view, our good is always kind of what we want. Our good is that we would be healthy. Our good is that we would be financially prosperous. Our good is that our lives would be comfortable. Our good is that basically everything would work the way we want it to work in our lives. That's, that is for our good. But God, God isn't as concerned about our comfort as we are. 
And God isn't as concerned about our financial prosperity as we are. Gosh, God isn't even as concerned about our, our health as we are. So what is the our good that God is working toward if it's not the things that I would say are our good? Well, he answers that for us. That we might be conformed to the image of his son. See, God's ultimate plans for all of our lives. Really, it's threefold. First, he wants us to know Jesus. It's God's first initial plan for all of our lives. Secondly, God wants us to be like Jesus. Right? He's going to work to, to, to transform our character so that we are like Jesus in the world. Thirdly, He wants us to serve Jesus. Everything God does in our lives is to produce one or more of those in us. Before we're saved, He works in our lives. And the good He's trying to bring about is that we would come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. After we've come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God begins to work in our lives for our good, that we could be like Jesus and not like the world, and that we would use that and we would serve Jesus in the world. See, everything that God does, that's what it's for. He is working in our lives for our salvation or our sanctification. He is working in our lives so that we can know Jesus, we can be like Jesus, And we can serve Jesus. That is God's ultimate good for our lives. And God is far more concerned about those three areas of our life than He is anything else. He is committed to doing what it takes to make us see our need for Jesus. He is committed to doing what it takes to forge Christ-like character in us. And He is committed to doing what it takes to get us in the place that we can do His will in the world. This is God's divine design for us all. And so, as we come to the end of the message, we think about Esther and Joseph and God's ultimate plan for our lives. I've got three questions I want to leave you with to think about over the next week or so. Where am I in my life today? Think in terms, where are you physically, spiritually, vocationally? Where, where are you? How can I see God's divine design bringing me where I am today? Think in, think in ways you may have never thought before. What circumstances brought you to the place where you are now? What were the circumstances of your life that led to your salvation? What were some key events in your life that helped you to become more like Jesus? What were some things in your life that brought you to the place where you are today? How did you get here? How does, and then as you think about that, ask, how do I see God's hand involved in these things? And then finally, what has God placed me where I am to do for His glory? See, God hasn't orchestrated events in our lives to to get us to this place to not do something. Like Esther, we are here for such a time as this, but what what is our this? What is your this? Why are you where you are today? What does God have for you to do for your good, for His glory? 
For make no mistake, there is something. There always is. Anytime God brings us to a place, there is something we are to do for His glory. What is it that you are to do? Part of knowing that God orchestrates and God works is to understand that that even just like coming to church today wasn't a coincidence that you're here. God wanted you to be here. God wanted you to hear this message. God wants you to consider these truths. Perhaps you've never trusted in Jesus and God is wanting you to understand that today He is working in your life, calling you to the place where you would receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Perhaps today He's brought you here so that you can begin to think, you know what, my life isn't just a bunch of circumstances. There is something that I'm supposed to do. And you begin to think and find out what it is so that you can... Do it. Why did God have you here today? What do you need to do in response to what God is talking to you about this morning? There is something for all of us. And it is our job to find it. To surrender to it. And to do it. Let's all 